The Buddha said, the whole world I suffuse with a heart grown great with loving kindness, free from enmity, untroubled. Likewise with a heart possessed with compassion, possessed with gladness, possessed with equanimity. If I walk up and down, my walking is sublime. My standing is sublime. My sitting is sublime. This is what I mean when I say a sublime abiding place. Formerly, this heart of mine was confined and not made to grow. Now my heart is boundless, well made to grow. As a result, this practice, thoughts in this, of this practice, thoughts and feelings that were formerly limited and constricted have become boundless. So these are the beautiful qualities of the heart that begin to shine forth more clearly through our practice. Loving kindness, compassion, gladness, equanimity. And just as with the seven factors of enlightenment, we can, they support and enhance our practice and we can intentionally develop them, so too the four Brahma-viharas, the divine abodes, are very powerful intention practices. They both support and enhance our concentration practice, and they're also concentration and liberation practices in their own right. However, as one of my teachers said, in daily life, spontaneous arisings of unconditional love and acceptance are too sporadic to be relied on. So we need to cultivate them. And like the seven factors of awakening, recognizing them, encouraging them, and supporting them has an immense benefit. And we've been doing that, actually, from the very beginning, from arriving here. We've been encouraging this attitude, this training the mind every moment in non-harming, in friendliness, in appreciation, and in balance. And also we've been taking time each day to offer metta, unconditional friendliness to all of our experience, all of our mind states, without exception to all of our experience. So this practice, our practice then has been permeated with this care, warmth, connectedness, kindness. The divine abodes, in a way like um, the samadhi, the concentration teachings, um, are taught in different ways in the suttas and in the Visuddhimagga. And I'd like to talk about both ways of working with the divine abodes, although I'll particularly talk about metta this evening. In the Visuddhimagga, most of the focus is on using loving-kindness practice as um, as, as a concentration practice. And so um, we have different meditation subjects, different categories of beings, and the phrases are directed to those particular categories with the view of moving into absorption and into boundless states. 
and I'll talk about that more in a little while. In the suttas, they have a wide variety of functions. Sometimes they're specific meditation subjects, and they can be used as antidotes to all the difficult mental states. So metta is an antidote to ill will, compassion to harmfulness. Sympathetic or altruistic joy is the antidote to discontent. And, of course, equanimity is the antidote to partiality or imbalance reactivity. We can also use the Brahma-viharas to infuse our whole life. And it's taught in the suttas as an expansive radiation, completely radiating out, spreading it, abiding in these states, and becoming soft or open, pliable of mind, inclusive, unbalanced. This is what it says, how the Blessed One talked to um, some of the bhikkhus um, in the Supa Sutta. One should abide or dwell, pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to oneself, one should abide pervading with loving-kindness. Then one should abide pervading the all-encompassing world, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill-will. And then he goes on to, for each of the Brahma-viharas, abundant, exalted, immeasurable. And, it ju- and then he says, when the liberation of mind by loving-kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. Just as a vigorous trumpeter could make herself heard without difficulty in all the four quarters, so too, when the liberation of mind by loving-kindness is developed in this way, no limiting action remains there. None persists there. This is to the path to the company of Brahma. So in other words, the practicing the divine abodes gets you to the deva realms. And it's said that then you can hang out in the deva realms for a while, and from there you can um, enter Nibbana. So you don't have to come back (laughs) if you practice loving-kindness in such a boundless way. So it's really um, this amazing pervasion, profusion of our whole life, an expansive radiation, everything that we do, how we live our lives. And the Metta Sutta describes it in detail, beginning with protection, living our lives in a way that creates safety, well-being, contentment, harmony. Sally was talking about sila the other night and how it's the foundation for all of our practice and for our concentration practice. Whether we're practicing um, shamatha or vipassana, we need the foundation of sila. A metta provides that. The metta sutta instructs us how to do that says we should be contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in our ways. 
And I really like the unburdened with duties because <laughs> it's something I tend to omit in my daily life. And contented and easily satisfied is a good one for me too. And the value of memorizing for me these suttas is that every once in a while when I'm getting burdened, it pops into my mind. Are you unburdened? Are you being contented? And are you being humble and not conceited? And so it's just a reminder of how we want to live our lives, not just how we are on retreat. Is what's happening enough? Can we practice contentment? So we wish in gladness and in safety that all beings are at ease. None through anger or ill will wishes harm upon another. And so it's that gift of fearlessness and security for ourselves and for each other that we're offering. And we're inclining towards inclusivity rather than separateness. The Buddha, it's said, originally taught the Metta Sutta as an antidote to fear from the negative conditioning of our own minds. So it's a refuge and a safe harbor from all the torments that we can get caught in in our practice, from all the forces of Mara. Someone asked Buddha Dasa, a great Thai master, how Westerners who start their spiritual practice with deep inner wounds and trauma, with pain or self-hatred, how should people like this practice? And he said, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principle of metta. They should be taken out into nature, beautiful forests, mountains, and they should stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony in all life and their proper place amidst all things. So it's that invitation to open into the connectedness of life and to feel safe, that safety that enables us to do that. So that gradually the meta-conditioning starts to replace the fear conditioning. And we really can feel free from enmity and ill will, safe and free from harm. With metta as a part of our sila, it clarifies our hearts and minds when it's sila and acting in the world so that we have smoother external relationships with those around us. When we're, having, when we're, when we're infusing our concentration practice with metta, we get a smoother internal relationship with all the beings inside. And that leads to inner happiness and to healing. So then we're having an attitude of goodwill all the time, which just is such a powerful antidote to discouragement and judgment. When we're constantly dwelling on what's wrong with ourselves, our practice, the world, whatever it is, the mind gets dragged down and discouraged and distressed. Metta shifts why the mind dwells, and it's lighter and less sticky. So there's an intention to have our mind safe and protected 
from these difficult mind states. Aversion pushes apart. Metta unifies and brings together. Sometimes in our concentration practice, things can be not very kind. I first started many years ago with the Goenka style of practice, and I did get very concentrated doing those practices in the body sweeping, but there was a lot of cruelty that came up. And I hadn't learned how to do metta practice at that point, and it was really painful. Concentration plus harshness equals dukkha, really big dukkha. And also a lot more fear and contraction, and then it's harder to open. And so it's really unpleasant, and, um, and it's hard to practice that way. And even just learning the phrase, may I be free from enmity and ill will, was a great blessing. My practice began to soften, and there began to be opening. And when there's opening, wisdom can fall in. If our hearts are closed, it's hard for the insights to fall in and to sink really deeply in the way Eugene was talking about the other night, when there's that openness and depth, and also when it opens in other directions. So metta really is about non-aversion. Sometimes people think we have to have this warm fuzzy with metta, but it's just simply non-aversion, not having ill will. Sometimes we can look at the amount of aversion that we have in a day. They can be self-judgments, or they can be judging everybody else, or doubting, or um, remorse, or getting reactive when things aren't the way we want them to be. Um, It can be really um, kind of undermining. So just to imagine our minds completely protected from that. Not that those states might not arise, but just that they're passing through. They're not sticky anymore. And the more we come to use the metta in the practice, the more it's there for us spontaneously, not just as we're sitting, but in our lives. When we incline our mind to gentleness, friendliness, and goodwill, it really provides a safe harbor, a safe refuge from difficult mind states. When our primary object is the breath, just having friendliness towards the breath makes a difference. It feels good. There can be friendliness with the in-breath, with the out-breath. In fact, you can breathe in and breathe out all these four qualities. You can breathe in friendliness and breathe out and bathe the body with caring, with kindness, friendliness. When you're having a hard time, breathing in compassion, breathing out, letting the compassion sink in and bathe the body. You can breathe, as it says in the Mindfulness of Breathing Sutta, breathing in gladness, gladdening the mind as you, with the breath, and gladdening the whole experience with the breath. And then with equanimity, breathing in balance, breathing out coming to balance. When we have this support for the breath, it's, it's effortless. It doesn't need as much effort to hold our attention with the breath because it feels so wonderful to be there 
there's a softness and openness and ease. And even when we're having a difficult time, the metta can hold it, the compassion can hold it. It's that quality of friendship, being a good friend towards ourselves. And relaxing. When we stop and stop trying so much, our practice can unfold and the equanimity grows. When things are really hard, metta helps us stand by ourselves rather than turn on ourselves even more. It helps us stay afloat rather than feeding the negativity. Sometimes you can have a really difficult sit and then the judgments make it more difficult and things start to go down (laughs) and metta really helps keep us afloat when that's happening. When we find fault with the present experience, when we're unfriendly to what's arising, it feeds anxiety, lack of safety, lack of trust, and we start to feel separate and compare ourselves with others. When we hold it in friendliness, it's healing, and there's trust building. Both in the the Suddhimaga and in the suttas, Metta is taught as a purification practice, a really powerful purification practice. Both metta and concentration are purification. Whether your metta is just as concentration or a support for concentration, it still has that quality of, of purif- purifying. As our attention deepens, difficult mind states start to arise. Um, and we start to begin to penetrate some of the layers of all the stuff that's kind of obscuring our, the nature of our mind, preventing us from seeing clearly or from directly experiencing our true nature. So there are layers of difficult emotions. The first layer, in a way, is all the present hurts, all the present difficulties in our lives, our anxieties, our worries, about the future, about what's happening right now. And those start to get released as we settle down. And then as our practice deepens, as the concentration deepens, as the metta continues, the deeper layers start to be released. Um, And these are ones that are comprised of um, sometimes things that, difficult things that have been done to us in our lives, acts that we maybe haven't forgiven, old, unfinished business. They can also be difficult habits that we have, or they can be all the unskillful actions that we've done in our lives. Sometimes I've had a couple of days on retreat of mistake review, all the mistakes I've ever made as a physician review, which is very unpleasant, <laughs> you know, 30 years of practice. <laughs> but any, we can all get into mistake review, and just being able to recognize that it is a releasing. The barriers in our hearts, the places we've shut down, are softening and dissolving. In the, the Sudhimaga, it talks about metta as um, melting the psychic pollutants. So melting and bringing to the surface. Metta is like a magnet in a way, where the positive pole if the magnet is drawing out all the negative stuff. So um, when I first started metta practice, the 
just the, the phrase, may I be safe, brought forth all the ways in my life I hadn't been safe, and all the ways the other people in the world weren't safe. And um, it, was, it was really painful and difficult until I saw that it was drawing out all my doubts and fears about safety, but that the metta was holding that with kindness. So it wasn't just that it was bringing them out and there they were and they were being held in harshness, but they were being brought up and held in kindness. So there was the possibility of them moving through. So everything that was coming up to be seen, so to speak, was held in kindness. But it's not about being, um, metta isn't about being nice and pleasant. Apparently, um, a yogi left a note, this is at IMS, someone left a note on the board for the teachers saying, metta is so syrupy sweet and Pollyanna-ish, I hate it. It should be held in a separate room. (laughs) And from the feedback I've had from some of you about metta, (laughs) maybe you share that (laughs) feeling, it should be held in a separate room. And then the person wrote at the bottom, love, and then their name. (laughs) So maybe something happened. But kind doesn't equal nice. It really doesn't. And I grew up in England where there was a lot of emphasis on being nice. And let me tell you, it does not equal kind. So kindness is being honest and genuine and really there for ourselves just as we are. It's not papering over and um, New Age sweetness. It's really seeing with honesty what's there and acknowledging it fully without rejecting it with aversion or treating it with harshness. The analogies that I like for um, metta are like doing dirty laundry. Um, that's one of the analogies, so that the, uh, to begin with, the rinse water is really gross and disgusting, and then eventually, the, eventually it gets clean, and metta's the same. At first, what's coming out is all the impurities, and then gradually it's cleansed. Or if you're cleaning windows, at first they get more and more smeared and it, as you're cleaning them, and then eventually, lo and behold, you can see through. They're clear. So metta's like that. Rather than pushing away with aversion, it's transforming and integrating all these pieces and fragmentations and separations that have happened in our hearts. The more unconditional the acceptance is, the more fully we can release and the deeper levels of the painful conditioning Um, that we've cut off or dissociated from, the deeper levels start to be released and healed. And that builds gradually over time. Ajahn Sumedho um, gives the analogy of um, pest control. He says, our usual methods of pest control, that is, we spray bug spray everywhere to get rid of the pests by killing them, pollute the world. In the same way, aversion is polluting our minds. And so we need to be kind to our pests and learn to relate to them rather than um, trying to erase them and get rid of them in that way.
when we can bring that kind of acceptance to our practice, it's more and more possible to make mistakes, to allow, to try things out, just to explore and experiment. And it's very freeing. I was um, doing a retreat um, some years ago and really struggling. I was trying to achieve things. I had a big agenda and nothing was working out. And I just had these thoughts that sometimes you may have. If it wasn't for my mind, my practice would be fine. (laughs) And then I had the thought, if I wasn't an Adrian, my practice would be fine. Maybe if I had somebody else's mind. Um, And so it was really painful. And uh, I was sitting with this and just seeing how painful that was to to just be caught in that place. And then just the feeling, I'm failing or I failed. Um, And I had been doing some metta earlier. And then there was just this sudden realization, it's good that you're failing. What's that? It's really good. Hooray, you failed. And what happened was there, there was this dissolution of identifying with being one who was success and one who was a failure. And there was complete acceptance, complete acceptance. It was completely possible to not get it right. It wasn't about getting it right or getting it wrong. And so there's a lot of freedom in that. And then came the awareness, oh, now I'm getting it right. I've had this really good insight. (laughs) And I saw how that was feeding, that was feeding that approval, that that conditional love of having to get it right. And, And I saw how, wow, my whole life, you know, someone who has way too many degrees, I've been feeding that approval of getting it right, needing to be seen, needing to be special. And that being failure is such a relief because then I could actually feel the unconditional love that had nothing to do with getting it right or getting it wrong, nothing to do with failing or succeeding. That was so freeing. It was really, really a relief to just feel the depth of that unconditional love that didn't have, it wasn't personal. It wasn't about being an Adrian. It was just there. So the metta then brings things to the surface to be transformed and released. And we start to see where we're identified, where we're contracted around. And there's freedom in that. It also helps us to maintain connection with what's good rather than scanning for what's wrong. The more we drop in this intention for our own well-being, and our deepest well-being and happiness, the more that begins to become our reality. So that was there underneath. I'm failing. It's okay. And actually, (laughs) I had this image of being, uh, this is a few years ago, of being up here giving a Dharma talk, a really bad one. And my colleagues were sitting there, hysterical. Adrian's failing. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. You know, just, and it was so, everybody's laughing. And um, to have that kind of ease and not be attached was really a wonderful thing. Um, 
and just to see also how easy it is to get caught in the conditioning again of wanting to get it right because it's so deep. So our attitude is openness, willingness to include all of experience. There's no wrong experience. Whatever it is, we bring a friendly relationship to it, a caring attitude towards it. Whatever it is, can we be present for it with kindness, no matter how difficult it is. This non-discriminating kindness is so liberating, including rather than separating. So metta is like this gentle rain that falls everywhere and has no preference about where it falls and who it falls on. And it's seeping into our bodies, our minds, our hearts, without expectation, without any condition. And it's developing a trust that's not um, experienced in the wanting mind. When we're always wanting to something better or something different, it's hard to trust. And the trust doesn't grasp at conditions. It's able to really relax and accept things the way they are. And so this gradual growth of the Brahma-viharas and the seeding of them into our practice supports our concentration so we can relax into the moment, so we can release into being. May I receive the deepest well-being and happiness, and really receiving that, trust and confidence and faith start to grow. And the more content we are, the more desire abates the less we're needing anything to be different. And the more aversion abates, again, the less we're needing anything to be different. And because the hindrances are decreasing, so metta then is a protection against the hindrances, again, our concentration deepens. So I'd like to talk a little bit about metta as a concentration practice. And here we're using different objects, um, beginning with ourself and then radiating out to include the entire world. We can use the categories um, as a purification practice as well, um, at the beginning of a sitting or as we've been using it here to support our concentration. But we can also use the phrases to unify the mind and to concentrate the mind. Loving-kindness brings the mind together so it doesn't want to stray, and it gives a stability to the mind. And we're focusing on the phrases and on the object of our metta rather than on the breath. So we choose a particular being, and we choose phrases to help us stay focused. The phrases you're familiar with, may I be safe, May I be happy, or whatever the phrases are. We connect with the phrases, and we connect with the being that we're radiating it to, and we sustain our attention. So just like with the breath, the five jhanic factors are beginning to come in. We're connecting, we're sustaining, and joy begins to arise. And then we begin to experience um, sukha, and then one-pointedness. But it's more than just repeating the phrases. 
it's patiently, skillfully arousing the state of mind and heart of warmth, friendliness, caring. So there's a real connection with the felt sense of metta. It's not, um, when we say may I, it's not um, a request or wishful thinking. It's a powerful intention, a powerful resolve. It's aligning ourselves with pure motivation and clear determination. It's sort of impeccable turning of the mind towards this particular phrase and this particular intention for safety, well-being, ease. So we're using the phrases to arouse warmth, tenderness, the direct experience of each one. So the phrases become like a conduit to deeper and deeper beneath the words this unconditional acceptance. We're just channeling that in. And we're relaxing the body-mind just like we do with the breath. And we choose the easiest object to begin with. Um, And different teachers have different ideas about which is the easiest object. And traditionally, one is supposed to begin with oneself and then go to a dear friend um, of the same of the same sex. Um, Arjan Brahmavanso suggests um, beginning with a pet as the near as the first one you start with, and then the very last category after difficult person is yourself. And so, um, ideally, you start with where it's easiest to get a little bit of meta going. So it's like you have. You're starting a fire with with the easiest category. So it might be that coming up the hill, you saw the baby turkeys and your heart opened, and these little fluffy things, or the deer, baby deer, or whatever. So you start with where the heart spontaneously opens, and then you feed the fire until the metta is really like um, a blaze and is flowing, is growing and um, spreading out. And it's only when it's really, really blazing and full that you put the wet logs of your difficult people (laughs) onto the flames. And so when you're using it as concentration practice, you might stay with one category for quite a long time, really being with that until the barriers in the heart are dissolved and it starts to spread out and become more full. If you're using it as a, as a, as a support for Vipassana or, or concentration practice, it's not so important. And as we've been doing, we go through the categories um, just to allow the heart to open, but not because we're wanting to build concentration in that way. And we can also use the breath, as you've been doing, breathing in metta, breathing it out, radiating it to another being. And we can coordinate it with the breath, and that helps initially to breathe in and then spread it through the body or to radiate it out to other beings. Sometimes they have the sense of breathing in um, and um, like fanning the flame and getting the flame of metta going, and then as you breathe out, spreading it through the body. And some people it's visual. There's like a force field of metta that goes towards their friends and other people. It's like a protective shield. 
So we use whatever modality works for us, the felt sense, an image, words, whatever it is. And some phrases are more effective than others. So there's no right way. We're just planting these seeds and we're being creative um, and encouraging the conditions without having expectation, just letting it sink into our experience. And just as with the breath, it's the continuity of the phrases of the felt sense of metta that begins to build concentration. And the concentration itself makes the mind more powerful, and then the phrases have more impact. And the feelings of love strengthen and deepen, and then the concentration deepens. And so it's this circle, metta feeds concentration, which in turn deepens the metta and the power of it. And letting it, it also really encourages the qual- this aspect of letting go that Eugene was talking about the other night, of really releasing and letting go over and over. And we're letting go of each phrase. We're letting go of the stories. And as we let go more and more, the mind settles and opens, and it's unifying and balancing. And just as with our breath practice, we need patience. It's planting seeds of, of metta with continuity, but without expectation. Any kind of wanting blocks and contracts and prevents the flow. So just as with the breath, it's what can I give rather than what experiences can I get. And yet again, the continuity is what secludes the mind from hindrances. And we, we use our mindfulness to be present to each phrase that we offer. Loving-kindness is presence with the flavor of love. Compassion is presence without aversion, and, and so forth. And equanimity, presence with balance. Sometimes I think of the phrases as like latent energy, like the calories in food. You know, each phrase has a certain amount of latent energy, and as we keep repeating them, we're, we're, we're drawing on the, um, the calories for metta. We're, we're building them up. And as we do our metta practice, as a concentration practice, again, it's purification, and doubts and fears come up. But because it's a concentration practice, stability is building that comes from the connecting and the sustaining. And we're more able to be with the difficulties that come up. And so we can get even deeper levels of healing, and it's profound. So just as the concentration is deepening and the metta is deepening, so is our ability to be with difficulty strengthening, because we're building stability. And not to underestimate the power of this. All of us have um, I've had difficult experiences here. And the, and the practices that we're doing are strengthening our ability to allow deeper levels of healing to happen and more barriers to dissolve. And as the barriers start to dissolve, the judgments of ourselves and others start to fall away and we move more into connectedness and there's less separation. 
and the five jhanic factors begin to develop. The metta begins to flow and to grow, and the metta brings the mind together so it doesn't want to stray. Just like with ekagata, the there's no outflow of, of attention. You're completely absorbed. We become completely absorbed into this beautiful feeling of love and openness that comes with metta as it grows. And it's like we become one with the object of metta. And as we, come, as we become one with the object, so say it's a friend or um, a loved one or benefactor, that becomes like your wish for their happiness cannot be separated from your wish from your own happiness. There's no separation. There's no separation between you and other. It's this, it's this beautiful um, interconnectedness. This is, um, some people uh, describe that as um, ac- the access concentration of metta, or the nimitta of metta, that separation or dissolving of the boundary. And we can, we can, in the same way with, uh, with that we, we've been talking about moving into jhanas with our concentration practice on the breath, one can do that with metta too, by inclining the mind from this really beautiful absorbed state. The um, metta and compassion practice take us to the three, first three jhanas, but we need equanimity practice to move to the fourth jhana, which has that deep equanimity in it. So I'm just sharing those, um, just to um, sort of fill the picture in about how valuable metta is and what's possible with it. So that it, it, it sees this unity, and any differences are disappear. There's this bringing together and this beautiful sense of limitless love or radiation outwards uh, that's, that's boundless and that is not personal, it's universal. So, just as our concentration practice brings this incredibly clear and malleable mind that we can then use for insight, loving-kindness practice can be, um, can be moved into, can be used to uh, go into insight practice. Um, someone, a householder, um, actually, was Anatta Pindika, the famous um, Brahmin who gave many, many um, great alms offerings. And the Buddha was telling him about um, a householder, a Brahmin, who gave such great alms offerings 84,000 bowls of gold filled with silver, 84,000 bowls of silver filled with gold, 84,000 bronze bowls filled with bullion. 84,000 elephants, chariots, milch cows, maidens, couches, and many, many millions of fine clothing, and on and on, with this indescribable amount of food and goodies. And as great as that alms offering was, it was nowhere near as fruitful as the offering of 
and then he lists all these other other things that the Buddha lists all these things as an as one offering that would um, feed a Buddha as one moment of doing um, taking the precepts and then finally he gets to say and as great as all this might be it would be even more fruitful if one would develop a mind of loving kindness even for the time it takes to pull a cow's udder. But as great as that might be, it would be even more fruitful still if you could develop the perception of impermanence for the time it takes to snap one's fingers. So our metta practice is amazingly liberating. I uh, found from in my own experience that um, this amount of metta doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> it doesn't really get the milk of loving kindness flowing very much just to do it for one minute. A lot of continuity is really helpful and really seeding our loving kindness practice and growing. And metta to others, metta to others um, also really opens us, opens us up and concentration deepens and it undoes all the selfish motivations and there's less clinging. The more we dissolve the boundaries in our hearts towards others, the more it dispels the illusion of a separate sense of self. It weakens that sense of I just as concentration weakens that sense of I. We, we go into this boundless heart that cherishes all living beings. It's inclusive rather than exclusive, and it infuses all of our lives. And so this is a little bit more um, about the liberating power of metta, and also how, how it can be made to um, to brought into a place where it can cause, fulfill liberation. At one point, um, the Blessed One was living in a certain town, and where he was, the bhikkhus decided to go out on alms rounds, and when, where they went to this particular place, there were some wanderers there, and the wanderers said to them, um, come bhikkhus, um, isn't it true that Gautama teaches you that abandoning the five hindrances and dwelling pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving-kindness, compassion, and so forth um, is, is um, he tells you to do this. Isn't this true? To, to d- dwell above and below and around and everywhere, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and ill-will. Isn't it true that he teaches that? Abandoning the hindrances, developing these beautiful qualities. Well, we too, friends, teach that. We teach that to our disciples as well. We teach them to abandon the five hindrances, and we teach them to develop these qualities. There isn't any difference between what he's teaching and what we're teaching. And so the monks heard that, and they neither delighted in it nor rejected it. And without delighting in it or rejecting in it, they went back to the Buddha and they said, well, what about this? What is the difference? No. Um, And so he said to them, 
when people speak to you like that, you should ask them, how is the liberation of the mind by loving-kindness developed? What does it have as its destination, its culmination, its fruit? How is it different? And then he went on to explain them this way. He said, how is the liberation of mind by loving-kindness developed? What's its destination, its culmination, its goal? Here, one develops the enlightenment factor of mindfulness accompanied by loving-kindness. The enlightenment factor of investigation accompanied by loving-kindness, and so on. All the enlightenment factors accompanied by loving-kindness. And in that way, um, one reaches the enlightenment factor of equanimity accompanied by loving-kindness based on seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, matures in release. One's liberated, freed. And so what he's doing is combining bringing the loving-kindness practice and bringing the factors of awakening, our insight practices, to lead to freedom. Turning towards insight with the power of the concentrated mind. And we can do that, too. We can combine both, but also in our lives we can bring the stability of loving-kindness, the stability of, of compassion and of equanimity and of joy. Directly or indirectly, whatever we're doing, we can make the friendliness to ourselves continuous. We can imbue our whole practice, all of our lives, with these beautiful qualities so that they're unified into well-being, into radiating that out. And it brings um, enormous benefit, whether it's on retreat or whether it's in our lives. (coughs) And I've found that metta supports both my concentration practice and it also benefits insight. And it can happen in ways that we don't expect. Um, again, I was sitting at a retreat some, this is a very long time ago, and doing concentration practice. And it was time for the metta session, as you know, usually happens in the afternoon, and Jack came in and led the loving-kindness practice. And I was filled with aversion, really huge aversion. And I didn't do it. I heard the words, but I didn't do it. And then people walked out, and I just kept sitting there and sitting there. And then I had this image of um, myself in my office. And I was peeling off these labels off my face of all these judgments. You know, messiest desk, can't do this, doesn't do that, doesn't, you know, just over and over, all this judgment. And then all of a sudden, there was nothing there. It was gone. There was nobody to stick the labels on. And it's just this experience of emptiness. And in the emptiness, there was no Adrian. There was an occasional breath arising and falling. And then the this sense of spaciousness was filled with metta. It was as though metta came in to fill the space. And just to be pervaded with that sense of love and unconditional acceptance. 
was very freeing. And also the insight that I'm not all that. We're not the identities that we think we are. They're just mind states. And the more we practice metta, the more we start to let go of those and really connect with our true nature. And that's very freeing. So I'd like to end with this ending of the Buddhas, um, of the Metta Sutta. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again unto this world. So we imbue the whole of our life, our practice, with these qualities. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, is not born again into this world. So thank you for your attention, and may we all be held and pervaded with friendliness, compassion, gladness, and equanimity. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.